0: I'm going to share two readings with you at this time. The first uh, from the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. This is again a most wonderful passage that speaks to believers from the Apostle Paul speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, enabling us to recognize and enjoy the privilege we have of great status with God as his children, fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. Listen. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And then our text for this morning, the Old Testament reading, is from Second Samuel chapter nine. I'm sure you have second, not first. Second Samuel chapter nine. We're going to be talking about grace this morning. Not grace that we say before a meal, that term usually appears that way. Uh, Not physical movement, why doesn't she move with such grace? We're not using it in that way. We're using it in terms of what we call saving grace, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus in our lives. If I were to ask most of you, we've answered the question, what is grace, you'd say something like this, unmerited favor, undeserved benevolence, kindness, shown to us, and we don't deserve it. That's good. But when we sing about amazing grace, as we will at the end of the service, or marvelous grace of our loving Lord, or the wonderful grace of Jesus, whatever it might be, we're aware of it, but we need to really grasp it so it gets into deep into our hearts and souls, we really appreciate what it is. Intellectually, we might understand it, but we have to have it grip our hearts and minds. And I hope to be able to do that today. One way is to examine Bible stories that illustrate grace. Uh, for example, Saul of Tarsus, when the Lord reached down to him on the road to Damascus, talk about grace. There's a man that deserved nothing. He was out persecuting the church, killing, arranging for the murder of of Christians. The Lord reached down and showed his grace to him. But also, not only New Testament situation, but Old Testament texts like this, I hope will illustrate what grace looks like. Not what it is, not what grace is, because we're looking at an illustration that falls far short of what the saving grace of the Lord is. But hopefully this will help illustrate what it is like. Along the way, I will deal with the text. I'll share some theological points with you as we look through 2 Samuel chapter 9. Let me read that chapter to you. And David said, Is there still anyone left In his feet, the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that You should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's start where grace begins, in the first five verses or so of this chapter. In the background, in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan, the son of Saul, was David's best, best friend. And they made a covenant with one another one day, and they determined that whoever dies first, the other one will take care of their children, their grandchildren, and their family. It was a tremendous covenant made between David and Jonathan. Coming to our text, many, many years had gone by since that covenant had been made, We read in 1 Samuel 31 that both Saul and Jonathan died in battle in Gilboa. It's a little background to coming to chapter 9 here. Well, as we begin this chapter, we're not sure exactly why David happened to think about this, but on this particular day, maybe he was just taking a walk in the gardens around his palace or out on the porch of it. He began to think to himself, hmm, I wonder if there's any relative left Of Saul, because God had pronounced judgment on Saul's family. So for whatever reason, he you know he could conveniently forget about that. After all, Saul was out to kill David. Yet now David desires to show favor on behalf of Jonathan himself because of the covenant he and Jonathan made with one another. Where does saving grace begin? If you're a Christian here today, where did it begin? Did God look down upon you and say, there's a nice person? There's a good person? Hmm, maybe I should have him be in my family. No. It began in the eternal counsel of the eternal mind of Almighty God. And grace begins with his determination to save a people for himself. Ephesians 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We call this then a covenant of grace, an arrangement between God and sinners. Grace begins in the heart of the Lord, even as it began illustrated in the heart of David. So David uh, wanted to pursue this, and so he asked, uh, he's aware that Ziba used to be in Saul's, a he was a servant of Saul and so uh, he called him to himself he said uh, Ziba he said uh, in verse uh, end of verse 2 are you Ziba said, I'm your servant is there still someone somewhere in the house of Saul I would like to show kindness of God to him and Ziba says well as a matter of fact I'm aware there is one son of his now it happens however he's not in good shape he's crippled in his feet he can't walk That's just added there. We'll talk about that in a few moments again. Crippled in his feet. In the Old Testament times, being crippled was a sign of divine displeasure. Some of you are familiar that even in John chapter 9, uh, his disciples asked Jesus about a blind man, and uh, who, who sinned? Because this man was born blind, Jesus answered, it was not this man, the his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And we can apply that even to the, to this uh, crippled boy, uh, the son of Jonathan, that God's going to show, show something wonderful in his life. And so, in the palace that day, to David, this son was an unknown entity. He knew nothing about him, except what Ziba had said. So, David asked I was, okay, well, where is he? And he gave the answer, and he said, well, he's in Lodabar, staying in the house of Machir. Now, where's Lodabar? Well, if you have any idea of the geography of the Promised Land, you know you have the Mediterranean Sea over here, you have the Sea of Galilee flowing down to the Dead Sea. Across that body of river, that river there, out here in a very wilderness area, that's Lodabar. And the Hebrew word means nothing, nothingness. And so this son of Jonathan is out there, unknown to David, in this desolate place. Now, we are told also, back in 2 Samuel 4.4, that when the nurse who was taking care of little five-year-old Mephibosheth learned that Saul and Jonathan had been killed, she was afraid that this little boy was next. So she quickly grabbed him, and in her haste to get away, probably running to bar, she accidentally dropped him. As a result of that, he became crippled in both of his feet. Theologically, grace not only begins with the initiative of a sovereign God... But we see that in Mephibosheth's case, but also we see it with Abram, when he's in the city of Ur, God called him out, Abram didn't deserve anything, Jacob at Bethel, Moses and Midian, the twelve disciples of Jesus, Saul on the road to Damascus, none of these people deserved anything from God. They were living their own self-centered lives. So grace begins with the, with the act of God. And spiritually speaking, Mephibosheth out there in this desert area is a picture, spiritually, of mankind, lost, desolate, wandering around, trying to find answers to life, never see, always seeking, but never finding. They need the grace of God. So that's where grace begins. Secondly, Let's see where grace goes, where grace goes. David had obtained this information about Jonathan's son. Now what would he do with it? We would expect him simply to ignore any of of Saul's family, the way Saul had treated his family. And certainly this one person was not particularly important to King David he had a lot of things going on in his own kingdom to be bothered with somebody like that. He was surrounded by many gifted men. This, this boy would only be a dead weight to David. We could understand David saying, oh, boy, he's crippled, huh? Means he, he has to be a lot of care given to him, yeah? Well, so I to thank you for the information, and then kind of forget about it. But no, David's kindness had reached out to begin it, to begin with it. He wanted to continue showing that undeserved favor to Jonathan's son. Theologically, isn't this where grace goes to where the sinner is? Now, I don't know your background. I don't know how you came to know the Lord, whether it was a young boy or girl through the faithful testimony of your parents or a Sunday school teacher. Uh, I don't know this later in life. But somewhere along the line, the Lord came to you and reached and found you. David didn't leave it up to Mephibosheth to make a choice on whether or not he was going to come. Instead, as we read there at the beginning of verse 5, excuse me, at the the beginning of verse 5, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir of the son Amiel at Lodabar. Obviously, couldn't walk, David didn't send a pair of crutches and say, okay, Mephibosheth, heard about you. If, you. if you can make it somehow to Jerusalem, I'd like to get to meet you, get to talk to you a little bit about it. So here's a nice pair of royal crutches. You get there the best you can. I'm doing my part, you do your part. we will see it all comes together. <laughs> of course not. It'd be ridiculous. And so we, we can read into that phrase that he brought him when he said, bring him to me, that his servants, when they got there, and you can imagine what they thought, having to make this trip out there and say, why did King David send his way out to this place for this guy? But they followed orders, and somehow they picked him up, put him on a stretcher of some kind, however they did it, and they brought him all the way into the palace of King David in Jerusalem. That's where grace goes. It goes to the sinner. By the power of God's Holy Spirit, he begins to work in the heart. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's a very powerful Greek word there. Draws him, grabs him, brings it. It's exactly what David did. Mephibosheth didn't have any opportunity to say, I don't want to do it. I have no interest in it. The Lord, through David, was helping him leave Dobar and come to Jerusalem. Let me pause just a moment here. If you are a believer, don't let this amazing truth escape your, your thoughts day by day. God showed his sovereign grace to you and brought you to himself. He did it. All glory to him. When our text, finally the name of this little boy is given, I've said it several times, It's not the easiest word to say. I remember, I I think I taught it in a Sunday school class when I was a teenager. I first learned about Mephibosheth. I think I'm pronouncing it right. But I don't know very many people who name their children Mephibosheth, or their sons. (laughs) Call them Mephi for short, maybe, something like that. Strange name, Hebrew name, of course. But uh, here he is. At the time of chapter 4, verse 4, he was said to be age 5. Bible scholars believe that by this time of our text, he was probably in his early 20s. Don't ask me how they figure it out, but they do. Now, as noted a moment ago, when the soldiers representing David came, we could imagine Mephibosheth had to be filled with fear when his, his friends or servants or relatives, or whoever said, guess who's coming? Some representatives of King David of Jerusalem. And of course, he would think, of himself, oh no. I don't want it to meet him after what my grandfather did to him. But of course, he would find it even hard to believe that David would allow him, a cripple, to be accepted into his palace. Here they are. And those representing David said, Here we are. Come on over. We're going to bring you over. Lay on the stretcher. We'll bring you back. He had nothing to give. When he would show up to David, he could say, well, you might be interested to know what I've done in my life. Probably hadn't done much with his life because of his physical ailment. Yet on this particular day, that's exactly where Mephibosheth found himself, in the palace of King David of Israel, of Judah. Wow, what emotions were going through him at that time. Probably David and Mephibosheth had never met face to face. This was their first meeting. So for the first time, Mephibosheth glances and looks at the face of the man who was seeking to wipe out Mephibosheth's family. And at least he survived. Surely it was time for David to give payback, to take revenge. But instead, I'm sure with something of a smile on his face, David said, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, it's good to see you, good to meet you. How much was expressed just in that name and the way David must have said it. One day Jesus was walking down the streets of Jericho and stopped under a tree with all these many people following around him, but he singled out one person, Zacchaeus. You come down. I'm going to your house today. After Christ's resurrection, Mary was in the tomb area wandering around and she saw somebody she thought it was the gardener. And Finally, Jesus said, Mary. And that got her attention in a most remarkable way. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That got Saul of Tarsus' attention on the road to Damascus. Sinner, you, you, whenever you experienced the work of God in your heart, had to start there. Now, it may not have been a great dramatic thing, but just a time when you realize I'm a sinner before a holy God. Thankfully, God's grace reached down to you and to me with his love. Mephibosheth had to be overwhelmed by the situation, so we read that he falls on his face there and and just humbles himself, says, I I am your servant, end of verse 6. Where grace goes is the most remarkable thing. Think back to that scene in Gilead. David actually went to his servants, went all the way there. To reclaim that person. As I said, he didn't just send him crutches. He didn't give him the opportunity whether to accept the invitation or not. He said, You're coming. And the soldiers picked him up and brought him to Jerusalem. Theologically, grace responds to the gospel's demands. We talk about the invitation of the gospel. That's true. Jesus has Come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. It's an invitation, but it's also a demand. I am the Lord God; you are under my wrath even now, but I'm giving you the opportunity to get right with me through my Son Jesus. It's interesting that uh, so many people find the last part of Romans six twenty three hard to accept. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. In verses 7 and 8, take note of how David treats Mephibosheth. First of all, he said his name, and then he said, Don't fear. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, who is my best friend, and we made a covenant, take care of one another's children, and one of us was gone, I'm doing that today. For Jonathan, your father's sake, that covenant we made, I am inviting you into my palace. Although David often failed to be a good example, there were times when he really showed Jesus Christ in his life, and this is one of those, where he demonstrates the grace, the kindness of the Lord in the life of this man, Mephibosheth. And David uh, said, uh, well, if you do this or that, and I'll do this or that, no. He said, uh, I'm going to do two things for you. First of all, I'm going to grant to you unconditionally all the land of Saul, your grandfather, that previously had been forfeited to David. Probably through his servant Ziba. He, Ziba and his family had been taking care of it, his servants. And now David says, I'm going to give that all to you. And secondly, you're going to have a lasting place at my table. Undoubtedly, Mephibosheth had wondered, did I hear it right? This is King David offering me all this? What did I do to deserve this? Of course, we know the answer is nothing. So me the grace of David. In verse 8, Mephibosheth responds, what is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? That's how he saw himself, and he was accurate with it. I'm just like a dead dog. We're reminded of um, the phrase of John Newton. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Dead dog worm. Good description of the sinner before a righteous, holy God. Theologically, grace comes bringing about humility and self abasement. The sinner has nothing to offer to Christ. What can you offer to Almighty God? What can I offer? sinner is an utterly worthless wretch, a lost spiritual pauper. However, grace not only brings the person down, but lifts them up. Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you all this land to you. You're going to be able to sit at my table. Thankfully, grace doesn't just begin something and God says, okay, it's on your own now, you have to deal with it. But he brings us to himself, draws us to himself by his power. Which leads to our final point, where grace continues. As I say, we've already seen this, touched upon it, the, the restoration of fields and vineyards. Probably Zener had been, Ziba had been working on this with his family and servants. We're told in verse uh, 10 that he had 15 sons and 20 servants, pretty good work crew, to, have, to take care of the fields so that Mephibosheth could be support independently, could live independently, if you will. Now, Ziba was given the responsibility to take care of that property of Mephibosheth. Ziva, uh, we read that Ziva did agree to that arrangement. He'd be taken care of. By the way, Micah did have a son, or Mephibosheth did have a son called Micah. So it's his family, Ziva's family, were pretty well taken care of by what David did here. But it's that second that David promised to give to him it's a remarkable thing. To sit at his table. Now, this is not like the typical American family where um, the teenager been out playing ball or something or been someplace, comes running in. Sorry, I'm late, Mom. Oh, boy, this is good. Thank you. This is good. I got to go somewhere else. Steps into the table, eats and leaves. It's not talking about three meals a day. The phrase has to do with it being an honor position in David's household with kingly responsibilities. As a member of the royal family, this meant that Mephibosheth would be in the know about what was going on in the kingdom. He was able to sit at David's table. This is a place of status, of of respect. As we read at the beginning of verse 13, this would continue for the rest of Mephibosheth's life. What a promise. What an act of God's grace, uh, David's grace. And certainly a picture of what the Lord, how he treats us. He's not left us to fend for ourselves, to work our salvation out somehow. One cannot do grace. I cannot say, now go forth today and do a lot of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast Mephibosheth did not deserve what he received. He certainly didn't earn it. David granted it to him. We think of God's covenant love for us. God commends His love toward us, says Paul in Romans 5:8, "The while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." In that passage I read to you a moment ago from Romans eight. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, they are make word for daddy. We treat them with daddy, dad, father. That's the relationship believers can have with Him. 1 John 3 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Note how the story and the chapter ends. At the end of verse 13, now he was lame in both his feet. Now why did the author put that back in? We've already seen that a couple of places. We know that. He's crippled his feet. Yet the tagline of this narrative is, don't forget, Mephibosheth was lame in his feet. I think the answer is that in speaking once more about that, and therefore his constant need of David's care, the contrast is set forth as to what Mephibosheth was and what he came to be by the grace of King David. A Sunday school teacher once sat through a lesson on this chapter. And when it was done, he uh, came forward. He walked on a crutch. He had one leg twisted and short, but his face was aglow. And he came to the teacher and said, Do you know what, especially, I like about that story? That when Mephibosheth sat with the king, his feet were under the table, so no one could see. He was lame. As we become more and more identified with Christ and grow in things of our sanctification, our holiness of our life, more and more our feet should be disappearing under the table, so to speak. People won't see that. Hopefully they'll see more of the grace of God in us and the love and kindness that Jesus showed to us. So in this chapter, we found grace illustrated as free favor, unwarranted, unmerited by its recipient, attracted by nothing praiseworthy, object. Charles Swindoll sums it up this way, grace is what God does for mankind which we do not deserve, which we cannot earn, and which we will never be able to repay. Have you thought of your grace that way? God's grace in your life? I close with the words of a John Peterson hymn. The title is, What Grace is This? It's not a question, it's an exclamation point. Wow, what grace is this? What grace is this that brought my Savior down, that made him leave his glorious throne and crown, the one who made the earth, the sky, and sea, who put the stars in every galaxy? What condescension! Oh, how can it be? What shame he suffered... Oh, what agony. And then the death he died for sinners crucified. What grace is this? What grace is this? The account of David and the Pivisheth help us understand what grace is like, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. I hope you know that as you're here today. Join me in prayer. Father, we praise you for... Divine grace reached into our lives, showed us our sin, and brought us to your son Jesus so we understood what he did for us, dying in our place. Lord, may we then be people who live by grace, live in grace, sustain by grace, for we cannot do it by ourselves. We need you, O oh Lord, day by day. Through Jesus we pray.